The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. All right. Hey, so for the city church, it exists, we exist to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply to the ends of the earth. I say this pretty frequently, and the reason is because I want you to think about these words. These, this, this mission statement, and, and really Matthew 28, it, it, it literally drives me. I mean that. When I wake up each day to think about it. There's days where I wake up, and let's be honest, it doesn't drive me. Caffeine drives me. And then I ask for a lot of help, right? Um, but but it's, it's the North Star as I think about my life. And, and I, I know that some of you might think, well, that's because you're a pastor. I want you to know, I wish you could have met me prior to becoming a pastor because it was the same mission that drove me in the workforce when I worked six days a week for Radio Shack. It was the same thing that drove me uh, in, in just my everyday stuff of life. The reason is because I'm, and this is all the work of God, I'm captivated by Jesus. I'm just captivated by him. I, I can't get enough of who Christ is and, and, and what he's accomplished. And so that's a work of the Spirit that has happened in me, and I think has happened in many of you. Jesus said this in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and it's, it's a condensed version. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and, and really implied in this is teach the nations, meaning all people groups across this globe. Teach the nations to observe all that I have commanded you. So here's the deal. King Jesus said these words, so it's really important we do this. It's just really important we do this. I think there are times we'll hear the commands of Christ, and we're not compelled to actually engage in the work that he set before us. But he says to teach, and the, to teach the nations to obey King Jesus. So therefore, as his citizens, we ought to seek to obey all that he has commanded us, right? Um, why? Because he has all authority in, in the universe. This is King Jesus. Now, we don't generally get that idea because we don't think in kingly terms, right? Um, but no one else has the right. No one else has the wisdom. No one else has the love to tell us how to order our lives, how to live our lives. Only King Jesus has that authority, and he does have the, that authority, right? Um, but there's times where I'm thinking of the first three songs we were just singing, and they were just gospel-drenched and beautiful and full of grace. And then I hear the text that Jonah just read, and I'm like, how do I put those together? Because if you were listening, it finishes with, bring them before me and slay them. <laughs> well, that sounds like a different tune than we were just singing, right? How do they come together, right? If you're reading the Gospels, if you're reading the Bible, and as a church, we're reading through the Old Testament right now, many of us, there are going to be times you're going to read things in the Bible, and they are going to be absolutely horrifying. Horrifying. And, and you have two choices in that moment. You probably have more choices, but I think of two immediately. One, you can be like, that's horrifying, and I don't necessarily understand all that's being said here. God help me. And then you can just roll up your sleeves and do some work and try to make these things come together. Or you can just say, mm, yeah, I don't like that. And you just turn the page, <laughs> right? Uh, there are people throughout history who just have taken the Bible and they took the parts that they didn't like about it and they just cut them out. 
and they ended up with a different Bible. And, and, and essentially, they end up with a different Jesus. And that's not good. Here's what I would say, though. If, you're, if, you're re, if you read a text like we just heard today, and you don't find it horrifying, I would say you're, you're, you're probably not awake. You're probably asleep, right? Um, I think texts like this exist to function as smelling salts, to kind of waken us up, right? To keep us from domesticating Jesus, because we want to domesticate Jesus. We want to make Jesus in our image, right? We do not want to be conformed to his all that often. We would much rather that Jesus was exactly how I want him to be, which exactly is how I want to be. But the word just doesn't function like that. This parable doesn't function like that. As the people of God, we ought to be shaped by Scripture, not the world. Right? And that's not, if that's a new concept to you, that's fine. That means you're new to the Word of God. But that's not a new concept, right? We must have our minds transformed, not conformed to the patterns of this world. So when we come to this text, just know there's some rough stuff in here, and there's some challenges that we're going to have to work through, and you ought to be asking the Holy Spirit to help you, to help you to see, to help you to understand. So let's, let's get to work. That is introduction in a sense, but it's part of the sermon. And the reason I say that is because context is king. So let's look at the first two verses, Luke 19, 11, and 12. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus is marching his way to the cross. Next week is the triumphal entry. We're going to be in that section, which is really just the last you know, week of his life till June. Right? Now you're like, a week till June. Yes, there's a lot going on in that week. But they're nearing Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately... He said, therefore, so we see why he's telling the parable. And here's the beginning of the parable. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. All right, let's think about this. Verse 11 tells us why this parable exists. Messianic (sighs) desires and hopes are at an all-time high. I mean, the people of God are abuzz right now, right? Because of everything that just happened leading up to this. Yes, all three years of Jesus's ministry, but particularly the last few days. He healed a blind man. He saved Zacchaeus. He, he, Zacchaeus' whole life transforms right in front of everyone. He's marching his way in, and everybody's like, it's finally time. He's going to set up the kingdom, which, which that means to them, it's the, the reign of King David only better is here which means he's going to slaughter all his enemies and he's going to reestablish Israel. He's going to make Israel great again. And they could not be more excited about that, but they got the timing of it wrong. They got the timing of it wrong. And so Jesus wants to correct their their thinking and their timing, which by the way, you should embrace that. That's a ministry that Jesus has. It's just a ministry that the Word of God has in the life of a believer. The Word of God will correct your thinking. If the Word of God never corrects your thinking, you've either arrived and now are perfect, right? You are avoiding the Word of God, or there's just some kind of, I don't know, you're in a slumber, you're just, you're just not thinking. You're not engaging the Word if the Word never corrects you. Oh, how the Word of God corrects, right? Well, that was active in Jesus' ministry then, and it's active in Jesus' ministry now. 
So why is this the challenge? Because here's the deal. The disciples have a tension between the kingdom that is already and yet to come in full, right? Because the kingdom's already here in a sense, right? But it's, there's still people dying, Jesus. I think we get this mistake of thinking Jesus healed everybody, that he raised all the dead people during his, his ministry of three years walking the earth. That's not the case. As a matter of fact, they're called miracles because they just didn't happen every day right? We're just reading about all these highlights in the three years, but there were people during Jesus's time he didn't heal. So it's here in part, not here in full, and they're thinking it's going to happen now, and it's going to happen during Passover week, and, and, and they've got the timing wrong. But I think if we think about it, we can certainly sympathize with them, right? I don't think for one second I would have been in that crowd and had it. I'm like, oh yeah, it's, it's going down. It's happening, right? Because everything leads up to that moment, especially with Zacchaeus. And then he says, salvation has come to this house today, for the Son of God has come seeking and saving the lost. So you can imagine that they would interpret the times that way. And in a sense, they were right. But they failed to understand that the kingdom had not and would not come in full yet. That time was yet to come. So Jesus tells this parable in order to correct their timeline. Side note, the, the Word of God will do this, and it's supposed to. It will correct your thinking. So with all that in mind, I want us to sit on that point a little bit. Um, so 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Listen to what this says. It says, All Scripture, everything in the Bible, is breathed out by God, and it's profitable. Have you ever thought of the word of God being profitable for you? It's profitable for your life. Um, it, there's great value. There's real treasure in the word of God. What's it profitable for? It's for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? So the, the Word of God ultimately exists to magnify God so that we might know God, so that we might enjoy God, so that we might gladly submit our lives to Him and be more like Him. But it also exists for reproof, right? People need to know when they're going wrong, right? Where they're going wrong. Your life is out of step with the truth of God's Word. That's reproof. But, but that alone is not sufficient. I think some people embrace that ministry and they just run around correcting everybody. But if that's all you do, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough to do what the Word seeks to do. Because they need, they need to know how to change. They need instruction, right? Um, which, that's, let's call that correcting, right? We're going to steer it back onto the path. Well, that alone also isn't enough. Because if you're anything like me, you're likely to go wrong and astray again. Which is why then we need teaching. Teaching to continually say... This is the path. That's not the way. Go this way. This is a function of the word. And the Bible teaches this is how, let's say, people individually, but churches corporately become mature. How do you measure maturity? I'm going to say one word, love, and not the way the world defines love. I'm saying the way the Bible defines love. Sacrificial love, laying yourself down for the sake of your neighbor, for the magnification of Christ, and seeing your life as one that was a big old gift from King Jesus to be stewarded, right? To be faithful. Okay, why? So that you can help people know the love of God. How? By the way you love, 
right? So I'm trying to keep this real simple, but I, but I want us to think. So that means good disciples have to be teachable. So the question that comes to me when I think about that text, Scott Rising, are you teachable when you come to the Word of God? Do you come humbly seeking to be challenged, to be changed, to be transformed, knowing that God loves you right where you're at, but He desires you to move along the path to be more like His Son, right? So so am I teachable? You should be asking yourself, am I teachable? Or do you only surround yourself with people that look like you, act like you, and cheer you on no matter what you do, even though they might ought to be correcting you? That's a question you have to think about, right? Um, That's what I'm thinking about when I read that text. Jesus never would have that. He he wasn't mean. He, He knew the best life was on this path. I want you on this path. Why? Because this is the path that leads to life. And I want you to have life. So follow me. So Jesus' teaching often included correction. But I would say that this is just not something that's embraced. Sometimes it's embraced too much. We call those really crazy fundamentalist churches, and you should probably, if you're in one, run. Um, But the opposite's just as true. If you're in a ministry that just never brings up anything that just rubs you a little wrong from the Word, right? Well, that's not good either. I think this is why many people just flounder in their walk with Jesus right? Because they've isolated themselves and they see discipleship only and primarily as a personal pursuit, them and Jesus, them and Jesus. And this is very popular in the world and culture of Christianity that we live in today, which by the way, is why I'm so encouraged by you all, by you all. And everybody I talk to, they're like, oh, young people just don't want the gospel anymore. It's okay. That's not my experience. I'm looking around. Well, as I get older, everybody becomes younger. But, but there are a lot of young folks here, and I see a lot of young people eager to know God, to know the gospel, to seek to obey Him, to worship King Jesus. None of us have arrived, but, but you want Him, and you want to know Him, and you want to be like Him. So, so hear that as an encouragement to you. Hear that as an encouragement to you. But many people isolate themselves. When I got to tell you, being more like Christ is, is a community project. I mean, it just is, right? It happens in the context of the local church. We need one another. We need one another to see our blind spots. You won't see your blind spot because, well, you're blind to it, right? This is why we need people in our life. Disciple making is an intentional process of evangelizing non-believers establishing believers in the gospel, helping them to know Christ and what he has accomplished in their place, right? Dying in their place, living in their place, resurrecting in their place, triumphantly ruling and reigning now, and he gives you his spirit so that you might have real power to walk out this thing we call life. And sometimes we can just stop there, but it also then includes equipping leaders to then do that work with other people. Right? And this is what Jesus is doing as he's nearing the end of his earthly ministry. He's ramping up. He knows he's about to leave. In, in, in the Gospel of John, he's much more explicit. He's like, I'm going away. And they're like, whoa, where are you going? And then he tells them some uh, interesting language that they don't all understand. Here he's not doing that, but he is teaching them. He's correcting them. You guys got to know this kingdom's not going to look like you think it looks. Disciple-making is absolutely word-centered, people-to-people ministry. 
This is what Jesus is doing. Listen how the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. You're like, are we going to get to the parable? We will. <laughs> we will. I can feel it. I can see it on some of you. I need you to hang in there with me because you'll understand, I think, why I'm taking so long to labor on this point as we get to it. So 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says this. Paul says, being so affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Why? Because you have become very dear to us. Man, I love this picture. I, I love this picture. The Apostle Paul loved the church. Prior to salvation, the Apostle Paul loved to kill the church, right? Think about the transformation. Uh, we're amazed by Zacchaeus' transformation. You ought to be amazed by Paul's transformation. He now sees his life as existing for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the local church to magnify King Jesus. It's why he exists, right? Why does this matter? Because you all are we're working hard to make sure you can interpret the Bible so that you can understand the word. Because once you see it, once you believe it, it will have a profound impact on you. Which is why we're, we're working to teach a class this summer, right? And it's, so I'm working on the title. It's not real exciting right now. It's just Introduction to Bible Interpretation and Application. woo sign me up. But <laughs> we'll come up with something more pithy and we'll put it on a, on a web or something. And we'll have a little, you know, thing and everybody will be like, well, that sounds more interesting. But that's what we're going to do. It's what we're going to do. Why? Because I'm convinced if you see it, and if you believe it by the power of the Spirit, it will, it will literally change your life. Every aspect of it. Every aspect of it. One of the things you'll hear is context is king. Which is why, as a church, we're committed to preaching through books of the Bible. Committed. We've been in Luke, it'll be a year and a half-ish by the time we're done, right? Um, and then we're going to take a couple week break and we're going to do a couple different things and then we're going to go into the book of Ruth and that's what we're going to do this summer. We're going to work through the book of Ruth. It's going to be seven or eight weeks. We're going to come back in the fall. We're going to do a 12 week. This will be a miracle and it will happen. I promise you, 12 weeks overview of the book of Acts, right? I know. I hear that laugh. We're going to do that. We're gonna, God willing, we're going to do that, right? And then we'll do probably a little Advent series, and then coming into the new year, we're already in the next year now, we're going to go through the book of James. And the reason is because I think it's fundamental that you and I understand what it looked like for the church to gather that had nothing in common except that Jesus Christ saved them and how much conflict was in the church. Ooh, the reason I say that is because we're going to enter a conflict. Oh, year three, year four, year five, everybody's getting a little tired of everybody. This place is a little cramped, right? It will happen. We've got to know how to respond to it, work through it, so that we can mature. So we can mature. We've got to understand how faith and works interplay. And, and really, the fruit that God desires to bring from his church that is equipped with his word, right? Filled with his spirit and on mission with God, okay? Now, that's introduction. <laughs> Why does this matter? Because most Christians, some churches don't teach and preach through the Bible. And when that happens, they end up with very deficient disciples because they have a very distorted Jesus. 
The reason I say that is because when you read this text, it's going to bother you. So let's get to it. We must see him who, as who he is, not who we want him to be. So the opening line of the parable, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. This would have absolutely grabbed the attention of the people there because about 30 years prior to this, King Herod did the exact same thing. But he's not talking about King Herod. He's talking about himself. In the same way, Jesus is about to take an extended trip to, that's right, heaven. And he's going to sit down at the right hand of the Father, and all authority on heaven and on earth is going to be given to him, and he is going to rule, and he is going to reign, and he is going to receive the kingdom in full. In full. Now, the analogy in the parable is really just to indicate, well, what do we do in the time that you leave to head back to the right hand of the Father and until you return? That's, that's what the whole parable is seeking to answer. So now let's look at 19, right? 13 through 19. So calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas. By the way, that's about three months pay for an average worker, okay? And he said to them, engage in business until I come, meaning when I, until I come back. He's going to get the kingdom. When I come back, what do you do? Engage in business. Great. But his citizens hated him. <laughs> That's funny. And, and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So, so the first came before the Lord and said, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Second came to him and said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities, right? Let's hit pause there. Much of the parable is dedicated to working through those events, right? Like we just said. However, notice that before departing, he gives all of his servants the same exact amount. The same exact amount, right? Why this matters, well, we'll get to that in a minute. But it's one mina per servant and engage in business. And they have different results of their work, right? The nobleman, what's he looking for? He's looking for return on investment. And if you're in business or if you just even understand like basic economics, you get this, right? I'm giving you this. I want you to be a good steward of it. I want you to be faithful with it. But I also want you to get some return on this thing. I want you to work it, right? And the first servant gets a thousand return on it. That's pretty good. And guess what he gets? He gets 10 cities. Well, that's, that's pretty awesome, right? Imagine three months worth of work, right? You invest that, do pretty good with it, and someone gives you 10 cities. Hmm. Uh, sounds like a good deal. Second servant, he gets 500 return, right? What's he get? He gets five cities. That's great. Notice the master, he's pretty happy. He's very happy with this return. And by the way, he's generous. He didn't have to give any of these folks anything. Don't miss, though. Don't miss that the disciples' faithfulness brings pleasure to the nobleman. Okay, if the nobleman in the story is Jesus, which I'm saying he is, then our obedience, our faithfulness, our efforts, it brings him joy. It brings him 
pleasure to see his children engaging in the business. Now, what is the family business of Jesus? Simply put, seeking and saving the lost. Don't detach this from the context that we just came out of in Luke 19.10. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. So my people, guess what? They ought to be engaged in seeking and saving the lost. That's the work, right? Okay, good. I like this family business. Now, notice this there's, there's some, we're going to get to it, not everybody did great with this. But notice the second thing to notice in the text we just looked at. Their faithfulness was in the face of great opposition, hostile environment, right? It appears that not everyone loves this generous king. Is that true of our lives? Do we live in, let me ask you a different one. Do we live in a world where everybody just really loves Jesus? This is not a trick question. You can say no, right? <laughs> right? No, they don't. But these men do, right? No doubt these women, he has disciples, men and women, they're very excited. So the story continues. Look at 20 through 27. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. Now, is that true? It's not true, and Jesus doesn't even address it. He doesn't need to. Why? Because he's going to show that what you're saying is actually not true. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I, if you, you knew, okay, if you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow, why then did you not put the money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from this man and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Oh, Jesus is not a socialist. And he said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. And I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Meek and mild Jesus showing up again. I mean, this parable ends with a frightening scene. I mean, it really is frightening. Especially for the wicked servants, right? Um, what do we do with this parable? That is a question. I'm reading this. I'm thinking, okay, how do you preach that, right? Well, in order to break it down, I think there's two major points here. One is that those who oppose Jesus' kingdom, either outright rebellion or passively, right, will be met with judgment. I think that's just clear. This is a judgment text. This is why we preach through books of the Bible. Nobody goes and says, this is a happy family Sunday, <laughs> right? It's just how it works. This is why we're so committed to preaching through books of the Bible. I would almost love nothing more sometimes to just come here and talk about how Jesus loves to save and wash all your... And we'll get to all of that because we never, ever preach the word without preaching the gospel. But this is a tough text. Second thing I think to see, though, and I think this is primarily where we need to focus, is those who follow Jesus must work to be faithful in their service until he returns. Why? Because we're going to give an account to the master. Your master's kind. <laughs> He's so kind. How, how do we know? Because this, this king willingly lays down his life for his servants. 
He willingly dies in our place. He actually dies in place of enemies so that enemies can be family and engage in the family business. Zacchaeus was definitely an enemy of God, and Jesus made him now a friend. Why? Because Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's kind, right? But I will tell you, sometimes this parable has been confused with Matthew 25, 14 through 30, which if you're familiar with that, that text, it's the parable of the talents. And because it's been confused, I think it confuses disciples. But I think it's different in many ways, but primarily, because I can't get into all of it, primarily the major way it's different is a talent and a mana is a different thing. A talent is, and they all got different amounts. So one talent is about gifting. You have been given more gifts than this person, and so there's going to be more accountability to you with what you do with that. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you all have the same amount. So it can't be the same thing. Mina represents much more, not talent, but a deposit that every Christian has been given. And I'm saying, namely, it's, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. You've been given this good news. You've been given this gospel. What will you do with it? What will you do with it? So that means that every follower of Jesus Christ is a steward of the gospel of grace in the midst of a hostile environment so it's not about giftedness, it's about faithfulness. So point one, those who are hard-heartedly rejecting the gracious, kingly rule and reign of Jesus will be met with judgment. It's not a kind thought, but it is something we, as pe the people of God, must think about. You must think about this, right? Notice the language. But as for the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That sounds radical to us in our language, but I will tell you that this is exactly how kings of that time engaged enemies. They just slaughtered them. So, so they get the parable, right? But this is a picture of the, what will happen for the people who will reject Jesus' rule and reign. I don't want you to rule my life. I don't want you to run my life. It's about me. And you can be passive about that. You don't have to be all hostile. Oh, I hate Jesus flags, right? Most people don't. But they do because they, they just refuse to see him for who he is, which is kind, gracious, full of compassion, full of mercy. And so they rebel. The reason this is a challenge is because most people just don't think about Jesus that way. Um, are you tempted to think that Jesus is a cruel king because of this parable? You might be. You might have to wrestle through that, right? Because he's killing some innocent bystanders. But here's the problem. They're not innocent. Each and every human being is, by nature, a sinner, by choice and by action. We're fallen. We're fallen. And all that we deserve is the wrath of God. So there is no innocent people out there. But, but you got to get this. The, the justice of God is so intertwined with the goodness of God that he has to deal with this. He has to deal with enemies. He has to deal with evil. He has to deal with sin. He has to deal with wicked people who want nothing to do with him. And if he doesn't, he is not good. He's not good. So you would end up with a very incomplete God if he did not deal with evil. Can't he just be like, it's all okay? No, he can't. He can't. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says this. 
The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Meaning will clear the guilty who, who don't want the pardon. Oh, he loves to clear the guilty. How? By humbly asking for the forgiveness of sins. He lavishes forgiveness and grace. Why? Well, because he's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. Why? Because he wants you to come in. He wants you to receive the kingdom. But some people are like, I don't want you to rule over me. Well, okay. But he's going to rule. Regardless. Look at the language. They do not want Jesus to reign over them. What is that? I mean, this isn't confusing. They don't want Jesus telling them how to live their lives. Don't tell me about my sex life. Don't tell me what to do with my relationships. Don't tell me what to do with my body. Don't tell me what to do with my bank account. Over and over and over. They might like Jesus as a savior, but they don't want Jesus as a king. And you don't get to choose. Because you don't get to divide Jesus like that. If you do that, I'm telling you kindly, you have a very distorted Jesus. And it's salvation by believing in the one true Jesus. It doesn't mean we have perfect theology, but you can't make Jesus into something he's not. And say, well, I'm cool with Jesus. Well, he's not cool with you. It doesn't give me joy to say that. A preaching ministry has to have warning in it. So I say that kindly. But why would you not want to receive his rule and reign? Was he loving? Of course he's loving. Well, how do I know? Because he laid his life down willingly on a cross and bled and died for you. Why? Because he had to? No, because he loves you. So why wouldn't we want to? But, but notice this. I don't think any of that's surprising to you. But don't miss this. Not all enemies of God are blatant and outside the gathering. Mm, now that'll preach. But I'm running. I probably ran out of time. He started that thing late. That's going to be hard for people to gather. But it really shouldn't be. Think about Judas. Judas was in the gang. You don't get closer than one of the 12 apostles. Did he love Jesus? No, he loved money. And I've had some preachers and teachers say, well, I think he's in heaven. Well, I think that you don't read your Bible properly. Why? Because the Bible says that Judas is a son of destruction and that it would have been better had he never been born. Nobody, Jesus don't say that about people going to heaven. It's not confusing. So he's one of the people who just kind of hid his little gift. Why? Because he never really received it. He never embraced it. He never brought it in. He just tucked it away. It never changed him. Well, this is a grisly picture of judgment. Why? Well, because it's impossible to teach about the judgment of God with care bears, sunshine, and smiles on our face. It's heavy because it's heavy. But it should be fuel to get us to engage in the work of the Father, right? Um, it's intended to be awful. It's intended to frighten you. It's intended to offend you. Why? So that it might act as though it's smelling salts under your dead nose to wake you up to your spiritual deadness, right? 
This is why Jesus tells this. So that you might say, oh, I don't want that to happen to me. Great, because King Jesus has made a way for your pardon, and he wants you to come on in. He wants you to embrace him. He wants you to enjoy him. He wants you to believe the good news that Jesus Christ died in your place so you don't have to die eternally. So trust him. Believe him. And listen to 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9. Jesus is talking about final judgment here in our text in Luke. And the Apostle Paul is talking about final judgment in 2 Thessalonians. He says, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is heavy stuff. The question is, real quick, have you received the pardon? Have you received the gospel? Have you believed? And if you have, all the three songs we sung at the beginning of this service, hallelujah, amen, woo, it's finished. But if you haven't, you might sing the words, but until they have been embraced in your heart, I do not want you going home confused. Why? Because Christ loves you, and I love you, and I want you to know the truth. And so it's imperative that you understand. It's imperative. It's all grace. It's all faith. It's all Christ. Believe. Believe. And if you do, then point two, this is going to make sense. Those who humbly receive the gracious kingly rule and reign of Jesus will be rewarded for their gospel faithfulness. Right? Every follower of Jesus Christ is a steward of the gospel. Meaning, the gospel is not yours. You're to care for it. Don't change it. Don't water it down. Don't add to it. This is the gift. We now engage in it. We have been entrusted with the good news of Jesus Christ, right? That's a heavy weight, but it's a joyful burden. It really is. Every believer has been given the same gospel deposit to invest, regardless of your abilities, right? If we invest it, we will receive Eternal rewards. I don't have time to get into that. It's really a neat thought. I don't know that we understand it all, but I do know this. We will rule and reign with Christ. Okay? What, what all does that mean? Talk afterwards. But know this. Our king is generous. You've done great. Here's 10 cities. Does that mean I'll get 10 cities in heaven? Maybe. I don't know. But you won't care. Why? Because pride will be gone. So if you're a janitor in heaven, if that exists, you will be just mopping the floor, singing, laughing, and enjoying. Why? Because sin is gone, and you won't be trying to make it to the pecking order of, look at me, because everybody will be looking at Christ. Everybody will be looking at Christ. But know this, we are co-workers with Christ. He is co-workers with us, and we must work here while there's still time, right? Don't forget your responsibilities to Christ and to the gospel, right? Why? Because that's, Jesus' business is seeking and saving the lost. He wants more and more people to come into the kingdom. He wants a, you know, the old song goes, it was a big, big house, right? We play football and stuff. It's so corny. But I get it. I get it. He wants it full. Why? Because more people worshiping King Jesus for his grace and for his mercy and for his forgiveness magnifies him, makes him look great, and he is great. He loves to save. 
So we're to be faithful with the proclamation of the gospel in the pulpit, but also in our missional community groups, in our one-on-one relationships, in our discipleships, and in our relationships with people who do not yet know Christ. We're to be faithful. We're not to water it down. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says this, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. This is our work. Are you eager for it? I know so many of you are, which makes my heart so happy. But I'll know, I also know some of you are still wrestling with, I don't know if I believe. That's fine. But can I just encourage you? Don't be comfortable with that. I would love to get a bunch of text messages saying, I don't know where I'm at with the Lord. Let's get coffee. I'll buy. Now, if you all call me, I need some of you to give me a gift card. <laughs> Friends, each and every one of us have been given the same gospel deposit. We all have the good news of Jesus Christ and its transformative effect in our lives. I think the problem is is that many Christians know what they've been saved from, namely Satan, sin, and death, and they have no clue what they've been saved to or for, which is joining God on mission to magnify his name. We've been commanded to engage in this business. That's that's the whole point for the believer in this text. In in Jesus' business, I think we've made it very clear. But this is not a matter of giftedness. It's a matter of faithfulness. So this is for every Christian in this room. Every Christian. And you all can play different parts. And you do. I see it. You all. So here's, here's just some questions for you to ponder. Are we investing the gospel? And I'm talking individually. I think corporately we are. Are we investing the gospel, right? Are we investing in what he has done for us? Are we investing what what we can do for other people who are not convinced of the good news of Jesus Christ? Are we using what we have to invest in the ministry of the gospel, right? Think about what you have and all the different things. How do I leverage, not people, but the things that I have for his name's sake. If you like to read, maybe you start a little book club and and you read and you get to know people. I hate to mention people, so I won't, but I think of some people in this room right now, because they'll be like, don't put me on the spot like that. That was good, but I don't like it. And they don't talk like that. But like, they, they have like hobbies that they like and they start these clubs and leagues. Why? Because they like to play, but they also want to get to know more and more people so that these people might get to know Jesus. It's so ingrained in the way they think, but that does not just happen. Are you, are you using the money that God has given you to invest in your local church? And, and if it's not here, that's fine. Go and be generous at another local church. The reason I say this is because this is what it looks like to just open up our hands and say, it's all yours. I want to be faithful. Here you go. Here you go. Take my little bit and just do amazing things in my life. Why? Because I want you to be more famous in the city of Greensburg. I want more and more people to know you, to worship you, to love you. And by the way, to turn it back on you, when you do that, you'll enjoy Jesus way more than you do right now. If you want to live on the break line, one foot in the sand, one foot in the ocean, you're going to hate life because you're going to be eating sand and spitting salt water. You just got to get in. You just got to go deep with Jesus because that is where the good life is. And there's no great whites in that, in that ocean, right? 
the, the, the waves don't crush you. You just kind of bob and enjoy, and it's a nice day, and there's seagulls, and they have french fries in their mouth, <laughs> right? Friends, every aspect of our lives has been given to us as a gift for gospel investment. Don't waste it. That means the place where you live right now, not when I, well, I'll get a house and someday I'll invite people over. Nope. If you got a little apartment, have people over. If you can only have two, have two, right? Um, the career where you work, it's not by mistake. You work there right now. Wow, well, be serious about it when I get into, I, I've had young men say this, when I get into gospel ministry, and they mean full-time ministry, and I'm like, you won't be serious then because you're not serious now. It, there's no magic that happens in that moment, right? Your interaction with people that are not convinced of the gospel, what does it look like? Do they think of you as being a kind, loving, gracious, merciful, generous person? Do you tip? And I'm not saying the person who just handed you a pamphlet. Everybody wants tips anymore. Give me a break. How about your sufferings? Are, are, are you investing your sufferings? Are you investing your heartaches? All of these are opportunities to magnify the grace of God. All of it's been given to you to steward. Here's the deal, and this is where we land the plane. And I'm on time, but I know that thing was started late. <laughs> but I love it. You, you, you may not like this, but you're, you're not free to use the things that God has given you for your own purposes and to neglect the people in your lives when it comes to gospel work. When, when we need to have probably a series on what gospel freedom looks like, what Jesus freedom looks like. Because I think, I, I hear people talk about freedom all the time, and they don't understand biblical freedom. Um, you're not free to go sinning all the day long. You're freed to not be a slave to sin. And when you do sin, you've been free of the penalty of sin, right? So we just need probably our thinking uh, rearranged a little bit there. But, but once again, don't want a Jesus that doesn't exist. What do I mean by that? Don't want a Jesus that saves your soul but doesn't rule your world. That Christ doesn't exist. He's not open to you. That Christ doesn't lead to heaven. That Christ doesn't lead to eternal life. That Christ isn't a Bible Christ. He says who he is. We submit and obey and worship the one who is revealed. And oh, by the way, he's so good. So good. In case you forget, cross, resurrection, life. Right? So, I'm going to finish with a quote, and I'm going to pray. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, I, I love it. He so succinctly said what I've been trying to say for the last hour. So, as the king's servants, we serve between the smile of Jesus and the frown of the world, and we must decide which we value most. That's good. That's why I don't write books. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which instructs, corrects, guides, gives life. It's powerful, not only to save, but to transform. And Lord, I, I know Many of these folks in this room, if not all, desire to live as your servants happily. And, and Lord, I, I want all of us to, to be able to give an account 
for the things that you have given us for when you return. Because we want to love you more. We want to love our neighbors more. And, and we want to look, learn what it looks like to, to live as happy, humble servants of King Jesus in a world that hates us. And we don't revile for reviling. We actually love our enemies. Why? Well, because you've loved us. And that's exactly where every one of us started, as enemies of God. And you came and you willingly went to the cross to die in the place of your enemies so the enemies could be transformed into sons and daughters and enjoy life with God. You are so good. If there's anything in our lives or in our minds that are keeping us from embracing your rule in our lives, whether it be fear, whether it be sin, whatever these things might be, I pray that whatever truth in your word we need to see and to understand so that we can happily submit and open our hands to you, that you would just right now reveal it, that you'd reveal it and that we could see it, whether it's unforgiveness, whether it's a wrong understanding of who you are, that you would reveal more of your grace and your love to us so that as your people, we could just embrace you because we've been embraced by you. God, help us to do that, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.